Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us, episode 95, During the Downtime. Last time, we talked about the human side of why the Challenger accident happened. We learned how a faulty joint design was allowed to remain in place, even when it started exhibiting worrying symptoms. We learned how the night before the launch there was a struggle between engineering and management, with management prevailing, recommending the launch. And we learned how the accident was investigated, and what some of that investigation's findings were. It was a heavy episode, and with that in mind, today we'll be doing something a little lighter. Really, today's episode will just be a short look around at what was happening in space during the long space shuttle flight hiatus. After three heavy episodes, I figured you all could use a little bit of a break, and I know for sure that I could. First, there are a few loose ends that I never really addressed in the three Challenger episodes. And since I don't think I'm going to get to them, I figured I'd at least mention them here and give you something. One thing I didn't get to was how did they end up fixing the joint? As I understand it, they more or less just introduced the capture feature that was designed for the filament-wound SRB casings. This is the design that changed the joint from a sort of ridge and groove design to more like two interlocking grooves, like a handshake. The added bit of metal made the joint more rigid, preventing it from flexing as much. Of course, this is rocket engineering, and there were also dozens of other small features to the joint, like a temperature sensor, a heater, changes to the insulation and propellant layout, the location of the leak check port, and so on. But at the end of the day, as intricate as the joint redesign was, it just got done. Because, as we know, if there's one thing NASA and its army of contractors is good at, it's solving a well-defined engineering problem. You're also probably wondering where a lot of the people involved ended up. My answer here is a little unsatisfying, since at least at the moment, I simply don't know for most folks. I can tell you that Alan McDonald and Roger Beaujolais were reassigned to different jobs at Thiokol after their dramatic testimony in front of the Rogers Commission. The commission interpreted this as them being punished for airing Thiokol's dirty laundry, while Thiokol said that it was because their skills were needed in their new positions, and it got them out of the firing line when it came to stuff like the press. Thiokol was also quick to point out that neither man took a pay cut. Regardless of their intent, the commission was not pleased, and Thiokol soon moved McDonald and Beaujolais back to their old jobs. For Beaujolais, it didn't really take. Roger Beaujolais took the accident extremely hard, feeling personally responsible for the deaths of the crew. No amount of reassurance that he had done everything he reasonably could have done could talk him out of it, and his guilt continued to eat at him. Eventually, he took an extended leave of absence before ultimately resigning from Morton Thiokol. Alan McDonald ended up being put in charge of the joint redesign effort, which feels like some sort of cosmic justice. If there was anyone who was going to do a good job on that joint, it seems like it'd be McDonald. Oh, and speaking of Al McDonald, if you missed it, a few days ago I released a supplemental with the audio of his testimony in front of the Rogers Commission. It's really long, at over an hour and a half, but it's pretty fascinating stuff. So if you've got a long drive ahead of you, I'd recommend checking it out. On the NASA side, I'm even more unclear. I know that the head of the Marshall Space Flight Center, Dr. William Lucas, was encouraged to retire, which he did. I believe Larry Malloy, George Hardy, and Stan Reinartz all remained within NASA, though not in their old positions. I'm not quite sure what to make of that, but since I'm also not quite sure what their new roles and responsibilities were, it's hard to make a judgment call. Another thing that I didn't really discuss was the impact of the accident on the greater spaceflight landscape. I think that's going to be best handled as part of the ongoing narrative, but I can quickly touch on some of the main points. 
The most obvious impact was the grounding of the shuttle fleet. The next flight wouldn't take place for 32 months, nearly 1,000 days after the loss of Challenger. This was a huge, huge problem. The shuttle already had a large and growing backlog of payloads to get into orbit. Everything from commercial commsats to science missions to national security assets. And remember, the shuttle was supposed to be the launch platform for the United States, by law. So a ton of payloads had been designed with the shuttle's capability in mind. So it's not like these could just be quickly switched to some other rocket. It doesn't work like that. Changing launch vehicles, even to a fairly similar one, is a pretty big deal. Switching off of the shuttle would require a lot of time, money, and effort. Plus, what were they supposed to switch to? At the time, there was a fairly limited selection of launch vehicles, and the non-shuttle options were actively being phased out. The military was still using the occasional Titan III for payloads that couldn't have flown on the shuttle, but it wasn't like today, where we have the Atlas V, Delta IV, Delta IV Heavy, Falcon 9, Falcon Heavy, Electron, Pegasus, Antares, and soon New Glenn, Starship, and Vulcan. In fact, ever wonder how all these vehicles came about? You can trace it back to the Challenger accident. With the accident making it clear that the United States could not rely on the shuttle alone, new legislation was passed to make it easier for companies to break into the spaceflight industry. This is what paved the way for the first era of commercial spaceflight before the likes of SpaceX, Rocket Lab, and Blue Origin got in to shake things up. But all of that is going to take a lot of time. While we wait, several notable payloads were delayed by years. Among them were the Ulysses Space Probe, the Galileo-Jupiter probe, and the Hubble Space Telescope. So the accident also had a significant impact on the space science community. And if waiting three years wasn't bad enough for the Galileo team, the unexpected extended storage led to a breakdown of some lubricant, resulting in a failed deployment of the high-gain antenna once it finally did launch. Galileo went on to be a spectacularly successful mission, but had to be conducted with a fraction of the data budget that they had originally intended. But life goes on. NASA got to work making good on the lessons learned, improving the orbiters, and making plans for the future. Because despite the loss, the space program did indeed still have a future. The mission that was to inspire countless schoolchildren never came to be, but that doesn't mean that their message was lost. A good friend of mine told me, one thing I personally think is important about Challenger is that McAuliffe planned to inspire students through her teaching in space, and despite the accident, the entire crew did just that. I know I'm not the only one of that time who stayed the path instead of running from space. Fifteen people who perhaps exemplified that attitude more than any others reported for duty in mid-1987, NASA Astronaut Group 12. As is tradition, I will now rattle off all of their names so that we can promptly forget them and later wonder, wait, why does this name sound so familiar when they finally fly in a few years? As always, this comes with the usual warning that I'm probably going to mess up a few pronunciations, nicknames, or both. On the pilot side, we have Andrew Andy Allen, Kenneth Ken Bowersox, Curtis Kurt Brown Jr., Kevin Chili Chilton, Donald McMonagall, William Reedy, and Kenneth Reitler Jr. And on the mission specialist side, Thomas Akers, Nancy Jan Davis, who went by her middle name, Colin Michael Fole, who also went by his middle name, Gregory Harbaugh, Mae Jameson, Bruce Melnick, 
Mario Runco Jr., and James Voss. Everyone in this group would fly at least once, with an average of three and a half times each, and Curtis Brown and Michael Fole tying for the most flights at six each. But all of Brown's flights were on the shuttle, so he gets this group's Most Shuttle Flights award. Fole still gets an award too, though, since he had the latest final flight of anyone in the group, doing a stint on the ISS that ended in 2004. Welcome to the Astronaut Corps, everyone. One more space topic to briefly touch on is something that happened less than a month after Challenger's final launch. On February 20th, 1986, the core module of the then-Soviet Union's new space station Mir was launched into orbit. I'm gonna be straight with you, I haven't done any proper research on Mir yet, so just for this one section, I'm gonna be one of those awful podcasts that just reads from Wikipedia and what I already knew off the top of my head. Sorry, I told you I was using this episode as a break. Anyway, like I said, Mir got started in early 1986 with its core module launching into a 51.6 degree inclination orbit aboard a Proton rocket. That's a pretty high inclination, but that's sort of how Russia does things. They're not really known for their equatorial launch facilities. Mir was the latest in a long line of successful Russian space stations, but was stepping it up a notch in terms of complexity and capability. Over a period of 10 years, six more pressurized modules were added to the core module, along with a bunch of unpressurized equipment. Originally designed for five years on orbit, Mir would go well past that, finally returning to Earth in a blaze of glory in 2001, 15 years after its mission began. Why am I telling you all this? Because on 10 separate occasions, the crew of Mir could have looked out the window and seen a spacecraft very familiar to us the Space Shuttle Orbiter. A spiritual successor to the Apollo-Soyuz test project, the Shuttle Mir program would pave the way for the International Space Station. The first shuttle flight to Mir was STS-63, flown by Discovery, which performed a rendezvous but did not dock in early 1995. So we've got a while before we discuss it in detail. But I wanted you to keep in the back of your head that while we're talking about shuttle stuff, Mir is off doing its own thing. I'm actually really looking forward to learning about Mir, just because it's so strange compared to the way NASA does things. Between Russia's completely different approach to rendezvous, to the crashes, the fires, the leaks, and the general scrumbled-together appearance of the station, Mir is going to be fun. Talking about my Patreon right after brazenly reading through the Mir Wikipedia page is a bit bold, but it's been a little bit, so I'm going to do it anyway. The rest of this episode is just Patreon and contact details, so I'm warning you now if you just want to skip to whatever's next in your queue. If you've been enjoying the show and either want a little something extra or just want to show your support, you can head on over to patreon.com slash thespaceaboveus. If you do that, you'll find three tiers of rewards. At the lowest tier, you can join the lively The Space Above Us Discord channel and chat about space with myself and other listeners. At the next tier, you get access to the Discord chat, along with space movie commentary by yours truly. The commentaries are MP3s that you play at the same time as the movie, and I just sort of talk on top of it. So far, I've got Space Cowboys, Moonraker, and The Martian, and people seem to be enjoying them. On the docket are a bunch of films including Apollo 13, Gravity, Space Camp, First Man, The Right Stuff, and that one episode of The Simpsons where Homer goes to space. And lastly, at the top tier, you can get the other rewards, but you can also join a monthly voice chat with me and a few other patrons. 
Usually we just talk about how the podcast is made, what's going on in space news, or just play some Kerbal Space Program. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also support the show with the PayPal button on the show's website, thespaceabove.us. But, of course, the ultimate show of your support is to simply tell your friends, family, co-workers, random strangers, whatever, about the show, and just keep listening. If you'd like to reach out with questions, comments, feedback, corrections, or just to say hi, I can always be reached via email at jp at thespaceabove.us, or on Twitter, where I'm at spaceaboveus. I typically take a few days to return an email, so please don't be discouraged if I don't respond right away. I promise I'll respond. Alright, I think that's more than enough talking about the show itself. Next time, we'll be back with a full proper episode, and NASA will be back in orbit. Discovery flies again on STS-26. We'll return to flight, deploy a TDRS, perform some science, and get the shuttle program rolling again. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Thank you.